He's traveled to Israel more than 10 times. If you saw him, you might recognize him as the car guy, Barry McGuire. Well, coming up, he joins us to share some amazing stories from his trips to Israel. But even more, he wants to ignite your life. What's it all about? I promise you a great adventure when you join us now for The Land and the Book. With our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, I'm John Geiger. And Charlie, I think a lot of people are asking, what's the next event on God's prophetic timeline? Why is it important? And and what does it mean for us specifically? You're right, John. And that's why our friends at Life and Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses this issue. The Rapture, Paul's Hope and Comfort, is an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and it will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. Uh, receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You'll also be able to learn more there about Life in Messiah's 135 year history of sharing God's heart. For the Jewish people. Could be this is your first time listening. A quick overview. Segment one, where we're at now, is a look at current events from the Middle East region. Segment two brings us a guest uniquely connected to what God is doing there. Uh, Segment three, questions and answers. That's always an interesting time. And segment four, a devotional from our host, Charlie Dyer, who, by the way, has been to Israel more than a hundred times himself. Charlie, uh, I understand as we swing toward our current events uh, focus, Israel's 75th anniversary celebration is now over. In retrospect, how did the Memorial Day and celebration of Israel's independence go? Were the two events uneventful, or did politics kind of mar things a bit? You know, John, in a rare show of unity, Prime Minister Netanyahu, Defense Minister Gallant, and opposition leaders Yair Lapid and Benny Gantz all issued a joint statement urging Israelis to put aside their deep divisions in honor of Memorial Day, and President Herzog echoed the same sentiments. And for the most part, Israelis chose to not interject partisan politics into the Memorial Day celebrations, and they focused instead on the more than 24,000 individuals who lost their lives to war and terrorism over the past 75 years. Memorial Day was then followed by Independence Day, which was also a time of celebration, though there were protest rallies in Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, and a few other cities. But Independence Day was basically a a time for families to head to the country's parks, to fire up their charcoal grills for picnics and barbecue. And in Jerusalem, they held an all-night mass folk dancing and sing-along. Of course, there were scores of fireworks celebrations. Now, one of the highlights of Independence Day is the flyover of planes and helicopters, and in this case, also drones. More than 100 Israeli aircraft, along with planes from the U.S., uh, Germany, the U.K., and Italy, passed over dozens of Israeli cities during the flyover. Hmm. Another interesting highlight was the annual report from Israel's Central Bureau of Statistics on the country's population. Israel now has 9.7 million people. Over 7 million, or almost 74%, are Jewish, while just over 2 million, or 21%, are Arab. Uh, The remaining half million are members of other minorities. Uh, The population last year grew more than 2%, with 183,000 new babies born, and the arrival of 79,000 new immigrants. Right now, a quarter of all Israelis are children 14 years old or under. Hmm. Now, one group in decline, though, that the statistics showed uh, were those who survived the Holocaust. Just under 150,000 Holocaust survivors still live in Israel. And sadly, around 15,000 died in the past year. 
and the average age of those still alive is 85. Now, one other statistic that also explains some of the internal struggles that Israel's facing right now show up as well. Uh, Since 1979, the general population of Israel has increased by 135%, but the ultra-Orthodox population has increased by 509%. It's grown from 5.6% of the population to almost 13%, and that helps explain the growing tension between secular and religious Israelis. Wow. Very interesting numbers there. Thanks, Charlie, for that overview. Israel's Knesset is scheduled to reconvene on April 30th following their recent break. With the judicial reform bill still on the docket, what might happen? (laughs) Well, right now, it's anybody's guess. President Herzog has said he believes Prime Minister Netanyahu wants to reach a compromise. And apparently, the talks between the coalition and opposition parties have been moving forward, though little is being said publicly about any particulars. The problem now seems to be that several key parties in Netanyahu's coalition, as well as some opposition parties, don't want to compromise. Some of the coalition partners want to push forward with the legislation. And the question is, will Netanyahu be able to get those partners to follow his leadership, or will this split the coalition and lead to new elections? And if Netanyahu can get those members of his coalition to hold back on advancing the legislation, Will the members of the opposition still be willing to accept a compromise that keeps the current coalition in power? Uh, Some of the opposition are determined to force Netanyahu and his coalition out. Now, without naming names, President Herzog said, if compromise talks between the government and opposition heads fail, he knows who's to blame. And he said that some are trying to pull out the rug from under the negotiations. It's unclear if he's referring to the renegade parties within the coalition or members of the opposition involved in the negotiations, or members of the opposition who are refusing to even negotiate. Uh, but the next few weeks are going to be crucial, John. If the current bills advance in the Knesset, well, then any attempts at compromise will have failed. For Israel's sake, let's hope the leading politicians assume the role of statesmen and find a solution that's in the best interests of the nation as a whole. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. It's a look at current events on this opening segment. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, lifetime student of the Middle East, writes extensively, travels extensively there. And I'm John Geiger, always glad to be learning alongside of you. Story number three, Israel and Turkey reestablished full diplomatic relations nine months ago. The question, though, is are the ties between these two countries moving along smoothly or have they started to fray? Yeah, sadly, the relations between the two are already starting to fray, although this really shouldn't come as any surprise. Turkey's President Erdogan is closely connected theologically to the Muslim Brotherhood and its offshoot in the Middle East, Hamas. Uh, Reestablishing diplomatic ties with Israel was part of his charm offensive leading up to Turkey's coming elections. Uh, Erdogan was in trouble politically. Financial decisions that he had made caused inflation to run rampant and Turkey's economy tanked, and his refusal to allow Sweden to join NATO, along with decisions to purchase military hardware from Russia, caused the U.S. to drop Turkey from the F-35 fighter plane program. Turkey decided that restoring relations with Israel could help the country economically and help improve relations with other countries, including us. But fundamentally, Turkey's position on Hamas, the Palestinians, and Israel hasn't changed. The conflict over the past several months between Israel, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and Iran have caused Erdogan once again to come out in support of the Palestinian factions and Iran. 
After the most recent clashes on the Temple Mount, Erdogan called on Iran's president to suggest that the Islamic world needs to unite against Israel's attacks against the Palestinians. Turkey's upcoming elections, well, they're scheduled for May 14. If Erdogan and his party retain power, it's likely that relations between Turkey and Israel will continue to fray. But should Erdogan lose the election? Well, then it's unclear what will happen next. Hmm. Uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens in just over two weeks now, John. How likely is it that Erdogan would lose the election? What do you think? Well, for the first time, they're saying that he could be in trouble. Uh, however, it's amazing the news media in Turkey have gone silent on that. And now, since he controls much of the news media, I think he doesn't want too much negative publicity being given right now. Uh, but that suggests to me he is in trouble. He is concerned. And we'll just have to wait and see. Our last story, reports recently surfaced on the discovery of an ancient manuscript fragment of the Gospel of Matthew. I'm intrigued, Charlie. How significant is this discovery? Anytime ancient manuscripts are discovered, it is a significant find. But in this case, it's not quite as important as some news articles made it out to be. Now, what was discovered was a copy of an earlier Syriac translation of the New Testament. Uh, Syriac is Christian Aramaic. It's a slightly different dialect from the Aramaic that was found in parts of the Hebrew Bible. The original translation of the Gospels into Syriac actually predates the oldest complete surviving manuscript that we have of the New Testament. So it's an important window into the original text. Uh, the manuscript discovered was likely copied from an earlier Syriac translation, and it was copied sometime in the 500s. It was then erased by being scraped clean around 1350, so another text could be written over it. That was done because parchment was rare and valuable. Uh, the scribe didn't recognize the importance of the earlier work and simply reused the paper. But thankfully, using modern techniques, scholars were able to read what was underneath the current writing. Now, what got everyone excited is that the text from Matthew 12 added a phrase not in our Bibles. The text normally says at that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But the newly discovered translation added, and they rubbed them in their hands and ate them. So the question is, was that part of the original text? Well, it was not, probably. But if it sounds familiar, it is actually in Luke's account of the event in Luke 6.1. So likely the copyist just simply remembered Luke's account and added that phrase. Uh, this is an interesting find. It helps illustrate how we compare manuscripts to arrive at the original text, but it really doesn't add anything new to the Bible. And that's a look at current events here on The Land and the Book. We're coming up, we're taking a ride with the car guy. His reflections on trips to Israel right ahead. He's traveled to Israel four times. Now, if you saw him, you might recognize him as the car guy, Barry McGuire. Spoiler alert, he wants to ignite your life. Have we got some questions for him? I'm John Geiger, and this is The Land and the Book. And before welcoming Barry to the program, though, let's welcome this thought on showing the love of Jesus to our Jewish friends and neighbors. If you had to boil it down, what is the single most important part of sharing Jesus with your Jewish friends. Let's ask Levi Hazen, who's executive director of Life in Messiah. What is the single most important part? Well, John, I think the answer to that is most certainly prayer. Jesus teaches us that no one comes to the Father except if the Father draws him. As J.I. Packer says in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, we are not only to talk to men about God, 
but also to talk to God about men. Mm. In addition, Jesus teaches us to persist in prayer, to bug him, to pester him, to not give up in praying. We see this clearly taught in the parable of the persistent widow. She keeps pounding on the judge's door late at night until he finally gets out of bed. Jesus says, be like that woman. Keep praying. Hmm. Is there a more important reason to keep pounding on God's door than for the souls of men and women? Colossians 4.2 instructs us, devote yourselves to prayer. Actually, John, R.A. Torrey, the first superintendent of Moody Bible Institute, said, one night of prayer will save us from many nights of insomnia. Time spent in prayer is not wasted, but time invested at big interest. The conversations I've had with my unsaved Jewish friends often go noticeably better when I take the time to pray for them before and after I speak with them about the Lord. Our philosophy of ministry, uh, the latest publications or evangelism styles are great, and we should strive for excellence in those areas. But without prayer and the movement of God's Spirit, the hearts of the unsaved remain dead and hardened toward God. That's Levi Hazen, who's executive director of Life in Messiah. Barry McGuire is the third-generation president of McGuire's Car Wax, the top-selling car wax in America and in countries around the world. His Car Crazy television show aired for 18 years and was viewed on Discovery Channel networks globally. He's also the founder and president of Ignite America, with weekly podcasts and daily features heard on over 900 Christian radio stations. We're really glad you joined us today on The Land and the Book, Barry. Great to be with you. My goodness, uh, I love your ministry, love your program, I love your heart. I really do. (laughs) You're awesome. Well, talk about this. Four trips to Israel for you, Barry. What keeps you coming back? Yeah, and I had a great one set up with Carrie Summers, who built the Museum of the Bible. He's going to take our family for a second trip for the whole family, and and then COVID hit. We didn't make it, but you know, every time we go, it's like a new experience, isn't it? I mean, you learn more stuff every time you go. And uh, so we've been and followed the footsteps of Paul. We we visit the sites of the seven churches of the book of Revelations. And uh, that was really meaningful. Two eminent Bible scholars and learned the applications of all seven, but particularly the one, uh, the church at Ephesus, when he says, you've left your first, I know your church. He's speaking to all of us today. He's here. He's talking to us Christians. I know you know who I am. I know you know good teaching from bad. I know you you give sacrifice of your time and your money, but I have this against you. You've left your first love. Hmm. You made somebody else more important than me, and you stopped doing the first work. The first thing, everything, every time you accept the Lord, whoever, whatever you accept the Lord, the first thing you do is you share your faith. You tell people about Jesus. So you've left me as your first love. We often get so excited, it could even be a ministry. God, help us with this ministry. And all of a sudden, we're saying, God, help us with our God. <laughs> yeah. We need to keep God first. And, and if God is what we're excited about, he's our all, we're going to tell people about him. It's natural for us to talk about what we're excited about. Folks, if yeah. you're not talking about Jesus, you're not excited about Jesus. You've left your first love. This is a powerful message that we all need to remember. He's everything. We're nothing. And he's he sovereignly moves on us. He, he salvations us with his love. His love is all about salvation. And when we're to love others as ourselves, he is literally salvationing them through us. 
You follow that? So every conversation you have, I don't care if it's with an old friend, a new friend, a waiter in the restaurant, he's salvationing them. You're his point of contact with them. There is no conversation that is secular. There's nothing in our lives that are secular. Everything we say and do is leading people, moving people closer or further away from God. So here's another newsflash. You're in full-time ministry right now, whether whether you like it or not. Well, you know, you're a car guy at heart, so let me ask you, if, if we're in Israel, we've talked about the seven churches of Revelation and the way that uh, impacted your life, that trip to Turkey. Let's transition to Israel, though. If you could drive any vehicle over any part of Israel's terrain, what would you drive? What would you choose for your vehicle? Oh, not, and that's a question I've never been asked before. And, and more importantly, where would you drive? Uh, I think to take it all in. Because I, you want to experience Israel. I don't want to have any of my enclosed cars. Probably my 32 Ford Hot Rod, where I can just be out there because it's, it's next to walking. You're just you're experiencing everything. And when you're when you're in Israel, you don't want to miss a thing. Everything, yeah. the smells, the the beauty, the the it, it realize you're you're there when it all happened. It's so exciting. Oh my goodness. So I think probably my 32 Hot Rod may not be my favorite car, but for driving through, <laughs> and that would be that would draw some attention. I must say as well. Well, speaking of cars, one of the biggest lessons that uh, I walked away from after my first visit to Israel was, wow, you know, distance is only half the challenge. For people walking up and down those hills, as they did in Bible times, the terrain itself makes a huge difference in travel times. It's not enough to just look at a map and, and, and gauge distances. What's been your observation here, Barry? Well, same thing. My my knee jerk was, what vehicle do I have that could traverse the places that I want to go? Not, I'm not talking about the roads. I'm talking about where the action really happened. And uh, it is, um, but it's earthy. You know, I've carried dirt back. I've carried rocks back. I just want. If you, I have a I have a rock that sits on my desk from where David cast a stone to Goliath, you know, and I have one just about the right size. <laughs> and, I, and I sit there and have that on my desk. And I think about the faithfulness of God. I can do anything with God. If God's for me, who can be against me? And it just puts a bounce in my step. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, joined today by Barry McGuire, the founder, president of Ignite America. Barry's weekly podcasts and daily features are heard on over 900 Christian radio stations. All right, I got to ask, what's an all-time favorite spot in Israel for you, Barry? What would you choose, and and why? Um, you know, it's not in Israel. When you go across to Jordan and you go up to that mountain where God stood with Moses and He showed him the Promised Land, you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like a long time ago, far, far away. No, it actually happened. As I stood there, and you can stand. I mean, you got to be standing pretty close to where God stood with Moses because there's a, there's an obvious place where it's the closest point, and you look out. I've been there three times. One time I couldn't even see it, but one time it was clear as a bell. And you see the Kidron Valley, all the green, and you see it all going up. You realize, imagine what Moses said. I, I, the other sites of he fell here, he was buried here. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. This is for sure. He stood here. This is where God stood. Yes. <laughs> there it is, the promised land. I, I, every time you get that, wow, can you imagine what's going through Moses' mind yes. at that moment? Yeah, I, I, that's my favorite, I think. Well, what have you not seen? in Israel that maybe you hope to someday experience? Any part of the Holy Land? Boy, I've been there four times. I've seen about everything there is to see in Israel. I mean, I've I've gone with scholars. Every time I've gone, I haven't gone to sightsee like a tourist or to have fun. (laughs) 
some church say, oh, we water skied on the Sea of Galilee. Yeah. Seriously? <laughs> First time I saw the Sea of Galilee, I saw people recreation-wise, on, and I thought, do they not know this is where Jesus walked? <laughs> right. <laughs> That's sacred water. Really, it's just a lake to them. Um, I've seen I've seen Israel pretty good. I've seen it, and I've spent time. And I've never been in a big group. I've always been in small groups. So if I wanted to uh, sit there in the Valley of Armageddon and just ponder and pray and think about what's coming and all, I've done that. I've really experienced Israel four times. I've, I've just sucked it up. It's just so wonderful. And they... I, I hope to go back again, but it's it's so vivid in my heart and my mind, and for all my family members, uh, it's if folks if you haven't been there, there's still time. You got to go. You know, Charlie Dyer, our host, is fond of saying it is the will of God for you to go to Israel. It is. Just take it at that. that. Yeah. You have a new book out called Ignite Your Life, and the title implies that some of our lives are not on fire. Tell us more. <laughs> well. The statistics are horrible. I, I, I guess we we can't just look around. Our churches are dead. Less than 10% of our servants even mention salvation anymore. More importantly, the statistics, and these were multiple studies that confirm that over 80% of Christians are living in fear today. So we can suspect that that's a, a large portion of those listening to us right now. If you're in fear, you're wavering. God says in James 1, I'll answer your prayers, but don't waver. If you're praying and worrying at the same time, you're you're like a wave of the sea driven by the wind and tossed. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let not that person expect to receive anything from me. So if you're wavering, he doesn't have to answer your prayers. On the other hand, if you trust the Lord with your whole heart and you acknowledge me and you don't depend on your own understanding, I'll direct your steps. We need direction today. If we ever need it, we need it today. So how do we get to unwavering, wholehearted faith? That's the key. And the point of our book is to say um, you can defeat fear with effortless faith. And just real quickly, in the few moments we have, I just jump right quickly. The, the scripture we all know, but don't really understand, most of us, is that 828, Romans 828, the scripture where he says, all things to work together for good that none of us believe. He says, oh, not working together for me, God. <laughs> but listen, there's a whole scripture there. You got to read the whole thing. And God's true, and he's honest. He is truth, and he means it. I'll make, I promise you, everybody listen to me right now, I promise you, I'll make everything in your life work together for good. If you do two things, there's a full scripture there. If you do two things, if you love me with your whole heart, mind, soul, God is, he's our first love. If we love him that much, then we'll share him because we talk about what we're excited about. And that's why he's saying, if you love me and you live for my purpose, his purpose, that your purpose He wants you to live for his purpose. When you live for his purpose, his purpose is to seek and save the lost, to seek and save the lost. When that's your highest calling, we say move everybody every day closer to Jesus. And when you live in that mode, every conversation, every room has purpose, everything you do. And guess what? Once you're doing that, you're feeling the Holy Spirit working through you and speaking through you. You know he's working with you. You're making God, you're giving God joy, and the joy of the Lord is your strength. Everything is working, and now you don't have to look at Bible reading like uh, something I have to do. You're digging in the Scripture because you're always being asked more questions that you don't know how to answer. And then you find them, the excitement of finding them, and then sharing them back with the person. And you're praying for the people you're with. It gets you off the bench, folks, and into the game. And that will ignite your life. And that's the point of the book. And I have 50 years of doing it. 
It's a full book of scriptures that went by the, just read the scriptures by the book. You'll be sharing your faith. I guarantee you. And then the trappings of my stories are just 50 years of real life experiences. How do you do that? Hmm. How do you walk in the room? How do you start a conversation with a, with a, somebody in a waiting room or sitting next to you anywhere you might be. And so it's a fun book. I'm getting the response coming back is overwhelming and I'm not, I don't get any money off this book. It's just 50 years of living this profound truth that's not profound. It's basic scripture 101. It is called the Great Commission for a reason. And the reason is in Isaiah 43.10, he says, I appoint you as my witness so that you will believe. Secondarily, they'll believe. He, he wants to get you. His focus is on you. He wants you to get out of your worry and out of your doldrums and have joy every day and a bounce in your stuff. He wants that for you. And he says, that's why I appoint you as my witness, so you'll have that kind of life, so you'll know me and know that I am God. So it's the full package. It is what life is about. Life is about redemption. not going to matter how many bottles of wires car wax I sold. The only thing that's going to matter for all of us 100 years from now is how many people are in heaven because of our influence, because of your influence. Think about that. How many people are in your life that are lost? The rapture could happen tomorrow. Will they be lost because you didn't talk to them? I mean, we have responsibility. We also have the privilege and the joy of doing it because when we do that, we have a bounce in our step every day. It ignites your life. I got to tell you, folks, this is the most fun thing in life to do. And most of us say, I don't want to do that. I'm not talented. I don't have the training. And uh, those are just excuses. That's all they are. Well, you can drop the excuses and get your life ignited as you dig further. We've got a link to Barry's book, Ignite Your Life, at our website, thelandandthebook.org. We'll encourage you to check that out. Barry, it's been a blast. It's gone too fast, and we could only wish you had a little more energy, brother. Well, I'm working on that. I'm working (laughs) on that. But when when I'm with you, come on. Thank you for helping us uh, here today on The Land of the Book. And again, the Ignite Your Life link is at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Barry, we'll let you get back to your day. Thank you. And coming up on The Land of the Book, Charlie Dyer's look at your Bible questions. Always something to think about here on The Land and the Book. You know, to me, there's nothing more engaging than to sit down with a nice edition of the Bible print copy in your lap. You're going through a taking your own sweet time. And then you come to a question, and and then you wonder about that question, and you finally get an answer to that question. (laughs) That's the satisfaction promised in this segment here on The Land and the Book. I'm John Gager, the guy with his Bible open. That's Dr. Charlie Dyer, our host. You ready for today's questions, Charlie? Oh, John, I am. I'm just like you. I'm a lover of questions. So when people ask them, that just gets me excited as well. Well, here's a question to get us started. What's the next event on God's prophetic timeline? Why is it important? And and what does it mean for you? Yeah, and that's why our friends at Life and Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses this issue. The Rapture, Paul's Hope and Comfort, is an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and it will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. Receiving your free e-gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free e-book. You'll also be able to learn more there about Life in Messiah's 135-year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people. 
And we're welcoming all kinds of questions today to our segment here. Yours welcome, by the way, when you email us, thelandandthebook at moody.edu is your point of connection. Sean says, after reading Song of Solomon, I have a bitter taste in my spirit. When I read all this stuff, I see manipulation. Uh, Solomon knows what he wants, knows what to say to get it, and with all of his wives, princesses, and concubines, it seems to me this was a well-versed playboy. What wife, princess, or concubine could this book then ascribe to? And could he have used this tagline for all of them? Well, I've got to say it this way. The freshness and and genuine love I, I see in this book suggests to me this must have been written at an early point in Solomon's life, before the political marriages and poor choices produced the Solomon who ultimately wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. However, there's not enough information in the book to help us identify the specific individual, though there are a few hints or clues that might eliminate some individuals like Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, For example, the bride is deeply tanned from working outside in the vineyards, it says in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Solomon's mother Bathsheba is said to be still alive at the time of this marriage in, in chapter 3, verse 11, which suggests it was probably relatively early in his reign. Now, I'm not sure what to do with the chapter 6, verse 8. It suggests Solomon already had begun his harem, though it's possible most of those were arranged political marriages. But finally, chapter 8, verse 5 suggests her mother was from Israel. But beyond those few clues, we really don't know who this bride was. But it does serve as a reminder to me that even wisdom isn't enough. Ultimately, we make choices either to obey what God has commanded or disobey. I think Solomon thought he was wise enough he could cut corners and not suffer the consequences. This marriage early on in his reign certainly shows that he had a tender heart, but sadly he discovered by cutting corners, he discovered too late that he was wrong, and we see the rest of his life uh, reflected in the book of Ecclesiastes that way. Mark's question has to do with the rapture. He says, growing up in the church, I was always presented with the idea that if a person is alive at the rapture and had previously heard about Jesus but didn't trust him as Savior and Lord, they would be precluded from salvation. I guess that theory was that, you know, only people who had not previously heard about Jesus but then believed would be among the tribulation saints. However, I can't find support for this in the Bible. My hope would be that the people I'm praying for and evangelizing, if they didn't receive Christ before the rapture, they could still do so afterwards. What are your thoughts? Yeah, in 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul said, uh, during the tribulation period, God's going to, quote, send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they may all be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So apparently, those who've heard and consciously rejected the gospel before the rapture will not have a second chance later. Uh, God will allow them to be deluded by the Antichrist. But I need to add an important caveat. Only God knows when an individual has heard the gospel, understood, and made that final conscious decision to reject. I know I must have heard the gospel message scores or hundreds of times growing up, but I can't remember it even registering on my consciousness. It wasn't until I was 17 when I actually remember hearing and understanding it for the first time, and that's the time I made the decision to trust Christ. Now, my point here is not everyone who's sat in church or listened to a friend has heard or understood or consciously rejected the gospel, and those who have not rejected might have another opportunity to hear and respond. Again, only God knows what's happening in a person's heart. But Paul's warning in 2 Thessalonians 2 is for everyone who has heard, understood, and thus far refused to respond to that message. They won't have a second chance after the rapture. Uh, Now's the accepted time. Now's the day of salvation. 
So the bottom line, continue praying for your friends and trust that God will work in their lives to draw them to himself and then use every opportunity you have to share the good news. That's Charlie Dyer. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. It's your questions at the heart of what we're doing here. And again, they're welcome when you email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Carol says, when Adam and Eve had to leave the Garden of Eden, God guarded the entrance with mighty cherubim to the east side of the garden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Were the cherubim and swords visible to passers-by for years? Did God take the tree of life up out of the garden, maybe during the flood, because it's been preserved and talked about in Revelation? Is the lush vegetation from the Garden of Eden the reason why there's such great oil reserves in that area? What do you think? Well, I'll start by saying this. I, I love this question. It shows a careful reading of the, the account in Genesis 3. Now, unfortunately, the Bible doesn't provide us with answers to all those questions you've asked. So take my thoughts here with what I'd tell my students back when I was teaching full-time, a, a grain of salt, or this one might require the whole salt shaker. <laughs> uh, from the wording in the account, I take it the cherubim and the flashing sword were visible to Adam and Eve and their descendants. Uh, verse 22 explains the reason for their presence because God says he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life. Uh, So they were visible guardians blocking access to humanity back to the garden. Uh, We don't know if God took the tree of life from the garden or if the tree of life uh, in the new Jerusalem is another one. Uh, It's certainly possible the tree is the same, but we're just not given that information. Uh, We also know the flood changed the surface features of the earth. So We're not sure how the four rivers flowed from the garden or how large the garden was. I think I I simply need to say that I don't know when it comes to connecting the Garden of Eden to present-day oil reserves in that region. Uh, That's one question that we might just need to wait till we get to heaven to find an answer. Hmm. A question about shepherds from Eric. He says, does the country of Israel still have wandering shepherds? What is their origin or background? Do they take their families with them? What do they eat, and where do they get their water? Do they live in tents? Do they graze their animals on public lands? You know, how do they market these animals? What do you say? There are still shepherds in Israel, and Israelis who work in agriculture tend to be very modern. They they keep their animals in pastures. They treat them in the way you'd expect a shepherd to do in our country today. But there are shepherds in Israel who are very much like those in the Bible, and those are the Bedouin. A Bedouin allow their flocks to graze out on open land, Today, they stay relatively near their homes or tents, and they bring their flocks back to the pens in the evening. Often, they have children out watching over their flocks. Uh, Sheep and goats are are quite hardy. They can find something to eat uh, most years, even in times of drought. But if there's a severe drought at times, I suppose they would seek to sell off some of the flock to recoup their investment. But the sheep and goats are their wealth, so they would do everything they could to keep them alive. Uh, Most are kept for wool and for the milk. One modern-day twist is the fact that many Bedouin have tractors and water tanks, so they're able to drive to get the water for the flock. Uh, One last item here, though, and it's not just for the person who asked the question, but for everybody listening, I'd urge you to Google the title, The Soul Shepherd, Uh, those three words. It's a great video on shepherds in Israel today. It was produced by sourceflix.com. It runs for just over 30 minutes. I, I own a copy. I can't recommend it highly enough. You'll learn all sorts of truth about sheep and shepherds in Israel today from that video. Here's a question for you about eating in heaven. Revelation 7 verse 16 says, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. So where do we find eating and drinking in heaven in God's word? 
Well, uh, two verses I, I think help answer this, and one is in Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, I'll tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And that was spoken by Jesus there in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the second one spoken by Jesus to the disciples, it's Matthew 26, 29. He said, but I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. So Jesus mentions eating in the kingdom. He mentions drinking in the kingdom. And uh, both of those, I think, are the answers. Now, I believe Revelation 7, 16, that verse that you quoted, can be reconciled with these verses by recognizing the words in that verse are being spoken to individuals in the tribulation period. Uh, those individuals were hungry and they were thirsty. They were suffering from exposure because they were being persecuted. And the verse isn't saying they'll never eat in heaven. It's promising that they'll never again be hungry or thirsty there. Thank you, Charlie. Always interesting to discover what uh, listeners are kind of scratching their heads about. And you share those with us with an email to the land and the book at moody.edu. Charlie writes you back with a personal answer in just a few days. And then uh, we get the program queued up for a future broadcast. It's just that simple. Hey, Charlie's devotional is next here on The Land and the Book. Almost every single one of us struggles with prayer. And sometimes those struggles are magnified in a prayer meeting. You ever been part of a prayer meeting where you felt not just that your own prayers weren't going past the ceiling, but the whole thing was maybe downright ineffective? Well, coming up here on The Land and the Book, Charlie, your devotional has to do with ineffective prayer meetings? Yeah, that's right, John. We're, we're looking at some of the most ineffective prayer meetings in the Bible. All right. Well, we'll look forward to that. First, though, this uh, testimony from someone who's traveled to the Holy Land and has this insight for you and me. My name is David Lipson from Odessa, Texas, and I just want to say thank you to Charlie for your knowledge and your work over the last 30 years. It's awesome. In my study of the scriptures, you've added so much more to what I knew before. Just going back and reading the Bible in the past week, it's helped to bring the locations and the people and the circumstances more to life that it means so much more to me. It's at such a, at a deeper level than I've been able to understand in the past that I think in the future, I'll be processing that information at a new quantum level from where I've been in the past. And, and something else just strikes me as a biblical principle when over and over throughout the Testaments, it says, God wants our obedience, not our offerings. And we've been to the sites that had the mixed up pagan offerings and it talks about a horned altar now we know what a horned altar looks like and what he really wanted was the obedience of their lives to serve his kingdom and it was awesome thank you all right we're headed to jeremiah 14 and 15 for part two of a series charlie you're calling the bible's most ineffective prayer meetings yeah that's right last week i started this three-week series and this week we're heading to jerusalem to visit with the prophet jeremiah but make sure you bring along a large bottle of water because Jerusalem is suffering through a terrible drought. The coating of dust covers the buildings and the grass on the hillsides is little more than brown stubble. Servants carrying empty water jars kick up clouds of reddish dirt as they return from empty cisterns. Jeremiah records the desperate state in which the city and country finds itself. The nobles send their servants for water. They go to the cisterns but find no water. 
They return with their jars unfilled. Dismay and despairing, they cover their heads. The ground is cracked because there is no rain in the land. Someone comes up with an idea that soon sparks the imagination of the people. Let's go to the temple and cry out to God for rain. Jeremiah then records their initial prayer in chapter 14, verses 7 to 9. Here's part of their cry. Although our sins testify against us, O Lord, do something for the sake of your name. For our backsliding is great. We've sinned against you. O hope of Israel, it's Savior in times of distress. You are among us, O Lord, and we bear your name. Do not forsake us. Wow, that sounds like a good prayer. Confession of sin. Profession of trust in God. I can almost hear Jeremiah saying under his breath, Finally, it took you long enough to come to your senses. But then Jeremiah received a shocking response from God. The Lord said to me, Do not pray for the well-being of this people. Although they fast, I will not listen to their cry. Although they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Instead, I will destroy them with the sword, famine, and plague. Jeremiah's words must have shocked and disappointed the people, but they had a plan B. They cried out again to the Lord. Here's a brief summary of their prayer in verses 19 to 22. Have you rejected Judah completely? Do you despise Zion? Why have you afflicted us so that we cannot be healed? O Lord, we acknowledge our wickedness and the guilt of our fathers and have indeed sinned against you. For the sake of your name, do not despise us. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember your covenant with us and do not break it. Do the skies themselves send down showers? No, it's you, O Lord, our God. Therefore, our hope is in you, for you are the one who does all this. God, we admitted that we've done wrong, so now you're obligated to forgive us. Don't you remember what you said in your covenant with us? Now it's your reputation that's at stake, so bring on the rain. Now, by all standards, the nation's two prayers in Jeremiah 14 are good prayers. They said all the right words, confessed their sin, acknowledged that God alone is the true God, and asked for his forgiveness. So why am I calling this one of the Bible's most ineffective prayer meetings? What could possibly go wrong? Well, the answer is found in the first several verses of chapter 15, where God provides Jeremiah with his answer to the people's prayer. Then the Lord said to me, Even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not go out to this people. Send them away from my presence. Let them go. Even if Moses and Samuel came back from the dead to join in this time of prayer, it would not make any difference. What a shocking statement, especially when we think back on the lives of those two men. In Exodus 32, when the people made the golden calf, God threatened to destroy the nation. But Moses sought God's favor and interceded, asking God to spare the nation. And God listened to Moses' prayer. In Numbers 14, following the report of the ten spies and the refusal of the people to enter the land, God again threatened to destroy the nation. And once again, Moses asked God to spare. And God replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Well, like Moses, Samuel also interceded for the nation. In 1 Samuel 7, at the very beginning of his ministry, Samuel cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf. God responded and saved Israel from a threatened Philistine invasion. And at the very end of his public ministry, Samuel's closing promise to Israel was, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. Moses and Samuel were the spiritual rock stars of intercessory prayer for the nation. Their prayers quite literally changed the course of Israel's history. 
at least up till now. But now, even if Moses and Samuel could somehow join their prayers to those of the people, it would make no difference. It was now too late. Now pause and think about what God just told Jeremiah. A time can come when it's simply too late for prayer to make a difference. Now I find that disturbing. I suspect you do as well. What brought the nation to the point where their national confession was totally ineffective and would remain so even if the greatest prayer warriors of all time were to come alongside and pray? Well, thankfully, God provides the answer. The first part of God's answer is found in verse 4. I will make them abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh, son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. So what had King Manasseh done? Here's a summary of his deeds from 2 Kings 21. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built pagan altars in the temple of the Lord. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced sorcery and divination, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Manasseh led the people astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. If evil is like a cancer, the Manasseh promoted its spread until the nation had a terminal case. But it wasn't just because of Manasseh. The people themselves also, quote, did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before them. They prayed all the right words in Jeremiah 14, but God could see into their hearts. Two chapters later, God asks, and then answers a profound question focused on motives and attitudes. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And in the next verse, God provides the answer. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. The people prayed all the right words, but their prayers were ineffective because God saw into their hearts. As soon as God sent rain, he knew they would immediately turn back to their sinful ways, and they did. As we get ready to return home, this ineffective prayer meeting should also cause us to take stock of our own prayer life. If I want my prayers to be effective, what do I need to do? I see two answers. First, I need to make sure I align my life with God's word. I can't choose to live in sin and then assume God is obligated to bail me out when my actions catch up with me. And second, I need to make sure my motives in prayer are pure. Am I trying to manipulate God to accomplish my will? Or am I praying, not my will, but thine be done? Or as James writes, you do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Remember, praying the right words, if done with the wrong motives, won't be effective even if you could get Moses and Samuel to pray with you. Boy, that is just downright sobering, Charlie. I mean, to think that Samuel and Moses themselves could not impact the heart of God. Wow, what, what uh, steps these people had taken in their lives. All right, our website is thelandandthebook.org. If you've never visited, we'd love to have you check it out, thelandandthebook.org. For Charlie Dyer and Dan Anderson, I'm John Gager. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. Thanks for listening.